Welcome to Covenant's Pulpit Ministry. Covenant Evangelical Free Church believes that the Bible is the Word of God and that God's Word is vital for life-transforming Christianity. We trust that you will grow to know the Word of God and more importantly, the God of the Word as you hear this message today. May God bless you as you open your heart to His Word. Morning. Welcome back to Covenant's Pulpit. So I've chosen to do something a little bit more unorthodox today and begin this sermon with a song. And the intention is to help us set the mood and to feel the tension that is present in the passage that we have today. Some of you may not know the song, if I can have my slides up on screen. Um, the song is titled, Is He Worthy? And it's by Andrew Peterson. Um, but if you do, I invite you to sing along with me the response part in brackets and also sing the chorus. And after the song, I'll give us a minute in silent prayer before we get into the sermon proper. Do you feel the world is broken? We do. Do you feel the shadows deepen? We do. Do you know that all the dark wouldn't stop the light from getting true? We do. Do you wish that you could see it all made new? We do. Is all creation groaning? It is. Is a new creation coming? It is. It is the glory of the Lord to be the light within our midst. It is. Is it good that we remind ourselves of this? It is. Is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to break the seals and open the scroll? The Lion of Judah, who conquered the grave. He is David's root and the Lamb who died to ransom the slave. Is he worthy? Is He worthy of all blessing and honor and glory? Is He worthy of this? He is. Please join me in prayer. Holy, holy, holy God, Lord of heaven and earth, yet the one we call Heavenly Father. Teach us, help us to live as your holy people in our world today. For we ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. 
Welcome back to Daniel 7. It's our third and final sermon in, in Daniel 7 today. And you would recall from Pastor Edmund's sermon two weeks ago that we are in a genre that is quite unfamiliar to us. That genre we call apocalyptic literature. And I understand that there may be some confusion about what this genre actually is and how it actually works. So here are some little tips just to remind us about what Pastor Edmund preached two weeks ago and also to just help us hold this in the back of our mind as we get into Daniel 7. So I have four points for us here, four quick points on apocalyptic literature. Um, the first is that we need to be future aware. Apocalyptic literature is future aware but present-oriented. So apocalyptic literature is not about some silver ball that somebody is staring into to predict the future. No, that's, that's not it. Right? Um, in apocalyptic literature, often the seer, in this case Daniel, is given a vision. But the vision is not primarily to tell the future, it's to help him to see the present through a spiritual lens. And in seeing the present with that spiritual lens, it encourages God's people to keep faithful in the present. So apocalyptic literature is actually resistance literature. The people of God are undergoing a bad time, but they are called to persevere. The second is that apocalyptic literature, as you all know by now, contains a lot of interesting images, images that we struggle to interpret today, but must have had some meaning to God's people in those times. Because if they don't understand the visions, then how does it inspire them to persevere? Right? They have to understand it. And so when we interpret apocalyptic literature, our task is to go back and ask, how would they have understood it? And therefore, how do we apply it today? So we do not do well by being too quick to say, oh, the Antichrist is the Pope, or is Hitler, or even President Obama, or Donald Trump. No, 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 don't, don't do that. Right? We need to go into the text and ask, how would they have understood the text first? Right? So interesting images for its original audience. The third is that it presents to us a behind-the-scenes view. So in apocalyptic literature, basically we understand this world, this physical world, and everything that we see with our eyes, it's not all that there is. There is something that goes on behind the scenes. And it's almost like taking a peek behind the curtain and seeing what happens behind. Knowing that what is behind actually controls what is going on here. So as Pastor KK rightly pointed out last week, who we see should give us the confidence for how we should live today. Who we see behind the scenes should give us that confidence for how we should live today. And fourth and finally, apocalyptic literature uses this literary device that is called dualism. You have heard of dualism before. We looked at it a little bit when we did First Thessalonians last year. But you're going to have to get used to it as we go through the next five chapters of the book of Daniel because apocalyptic literature, by definition, is dualistic. That means that everything is either black or white. There's no shades of grey. It doesn't mean that the people of that time don't understand that there's shades of grey. Of course they do, right? But what it means is to say that ultimately, you cannot choose to worship God and worship yourself. You cannot choose ultimately to seek the things of God and seek the worldly pleasures of the world. Alright, so you get it? Four simple things to hold in your mind as we go through the rest of the book of Daniel. It is future aware, but its intention is for the present. They are present, right? It contains interesting images, but these images need to be interpreted as how the original audience should understand it. It provides us a behind-the-scenes view 
And by showing us who is actually in control, showing us the spiritual realm behind the scenes, it gives us confidence to persevere now. And fourth, it paints everything in a very black and white dualistic image because ultimately, it's either God whom we serve or ourselves and the devil. Right? So that's apocalyptic literature. And eventually, as we go through Daniel chapter 7, you will recall from the last two weeks that, first of all, Pastor Edmund preached about the four beasts two weeks ago, right? Remember this nice uh, picture of uh, Godzilla? The four very scary beasts which emerge, and they are identified to be four kingdoms which wreak havoc on the earth. They are grotesque, right? Their, their power is kind of dehumanizing, it is destructive, it is clearly evil. Uh, but there is another vision, because as Pastor Edmund rightly pointed out, these beasts don't ultimately have the final say. Their beastly power is not absolute, because Daniel is given a different vision, and this vision, as Pastor KK preached last week, is about the Ancient of Days who is sitting on his throne. He owns the dominion over all the kingdoms of the earth, and there is one who approaches him, who walks up to the throne, and this person is called the one like a son of man. This one, like a son of man, goes and receives the kingdom from the one who sits on the throne, the Ancient of Days. And in doing so, the beast and all their influence is destroyed. Ultimately, it is God's power that is absolute and everything else is relative. It is God who will intervene, as Pastor KK reminded us last week, with both judgment and compassion. We dare not claim His grace and mercy without acknowledging His purity and majesty. But that's not all to the visions. And this third part is what we're going to focus on for today's sermon. There is another party in this vision. And if you look at Daniel chapter 7, I encourage you to turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7. If you look at verses 18, uh, 22 and 27, for example, this other party is called in various translations, either the holy people of the Most High, sometimes it's called the holy ones of the Most High, sometimes it's called the saints of the Most High. You may see it differently in your translations. They refer to the same group of people. Right? So this is from Daniel 7, 17 to 18. The four great beasts are four kings that will arise from the earth, but the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Now, scholars tend to disagree about who these holy people are, but the majority of scholars believe, and I agree, that these holy people don't refer to angelic beings, but they refer to humans. They refer to human beings who willingly worship God and remain faithful to God amid the persecution. So one scholar puts it like this, and I think it's very well balanced. He says that in reality, the earthly struggles of God's people here in the present uh, they are under oppression and there are also spiritual struggles in which the angels participate. Right? So remember that behind-the-scenes view. Ultimately, all of God's holy people, whether they are humans or angels, as long as they are God's holy people, they will inherit the kingdom. However, the language and struggle of the Jews in later chapters of Daniel, which we will get to in future sermons, implies that the holy people in Daniel 7 are human beings, right? So that's the, 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 the Jews back then, and that's us today as God's holy people. So these holy people are the focus of my sermons today, and in the midst of challenges, trials, 
even persecution and suffering, the question that we have to ask ourselves is, how are God's holy people supposed to live? What kind of people are they supposed to be? Or, where are the fantastic beasts today that try to oppress and persecute God's people? But more importantly than where are they being able to identify them, how are we to overcome them? I offer us two points today which may look simple, but I found to be extremely challenging to live out. Here are the two points. The first, we are to be a discerning people anchored in truth. Second, a persevering people assured in hope. A discerning people anchored in truth and a persevering people assured in hope. So to begin, we need to ask ourselves, what does holiness mean? And sometimes, often in Singapore society, in Singapore Christianity, we tend to think of holiness in very moralistic terms, like do this, don't do that, obey this law, don't break that law over there. And yes, but holiness in the Bible is far more nuanced and far larger than that. I like how um, Philip Jensen, one commentator, puts it. And Philip Jensen basically says that holiness is belonging to God in a special and distinctive way. So if you imagine in the Bible, God is the only one who is holy. And then there are circles, concentric circles of holiness that expand from the middle, which is God. To be more holy is to be closer to God, to be more consecrated to Him. To be less holy is to be further away from God. And this is such that even things like a pail or a scoop or a spade in the temple or the tabernacle can be classified as holy objects. Clearly, they are not moral. But because they are consecrated, they are set apart and they belong to God in a special, distinctive way, they are holy. So the question then becomes, how are a people who belong to God in a special way, God's holy people, how are we to live amid challenges in a way that is faithful to Him? We need to be a discerning people anchored in truth. So we've already seen that Daniel saw four kingdoms. These four kingdoms represent, as Pastor Edmund mentioned in the first sermon two weeks ago, these four kingdoms represent Babylon, Media, Persia, and Greece. And this might surprise you, but in Daniel's world, this four kingdoms pattern is nothing new to them. In, it's just part of the way that they are familiar with to talk about history that matters. Right? And in some ways, in Singapore, in, in the current global climate, we have similar things too. So for example, if I were to ask you to tell me about the global tech climate, technology climate, in the last 20 years, you would probably tell me a story in terms of Google, Apple, and Microsoft. Right? Or if I were to ask you about the social media climate in the last 20 years, you would probably tell me about Facebook, which is now Meta, Twitter, which is now X, or uh, Instagram, or maybe Telegram, or, or WhatsApp. Right? So it's not that these things are the only companies that are on the scene. It's just that they are big enough that broadly they tell us what the pattern of history has been. We even use this for Christian history. So for example, for the Reformation, if I were to ask you what's the Reformation about, most scholars would talk about the Reformation in Luther, Calvin, and John Wesley. Right? These are just the main people, the main characters who are on the scene. Right? But that does not mean that they are all the characters, neither does it mean that that's where it just stops, right? Uh, the story doesn't stop there. Things are still happening. 
So we know, for example, for the Persians, when the Persians came to power, they talked about their legitimacy in terms of Assyria, Media, and Persia. The Roman historians talked about the rise of Rome and the dominance of Rome in terms of four kingdoms that came before Rome. And the objective of this in all of these um, patterns is always to ask where does ultimate power lie. And in their culture, in Daniel's culture, ultimate power is always justified in the last kingdom, which makes Daniel quite different. Because you know that in Daniel, none of the four kingdoms actually have ultimate power. It is someone else who sits on the throne. Someone who is beyond, transcendent, above all the worldly powers. And so it is this pattern that persuades the Jews going through suffering under the regional superpower that God hasn't abandoned them. Their present-day suffering basically is not just a series of meaningless brutalities inflicted by the beast. The beast may have their day. The people may be persecuted. But in the end, God rules and God reigns. And in fact, because this pattern is not exhaustive, we do know that future generations of Christians continue to adopt this pattern as they sought to draw out what does this beastly power look like. So for example, in Revelation, John extends that four kingdoms of the beast to realize that a new beast has come on the scene. That beast is now Rome. Rome is oppressing people by its military and economic power. It is putting down other peoples who are weaker than them, taxing them even more, and transferring all their wealth to Rome. And we see this in the book of Revelation, in chapter 13 and so on. In other words, there are a few beastly principles that can vary based on what we observe. Right? So in the physical realm, they may vary, but in principle, the beastly principles are these. First, the beasts draw worship away from God and onto themselves. Second, the beasts propagate values and virtues that are in opposition to God's kingdom. Third, they oppress others explicitly or implicitly for their own enhancement. And so the question that is still relevant for us today is, are we able to discern these beasts today? Or are they so insidious in society and in our culture that we have bought into the beast and become like them. John Stotts is a familiar name to most of us. Um, his last book, which many of us consider the last will and testament of John Stott, is titled The Radical Disciple um, in 2010. And in, in this book, he opens the book with four challenges that God's people face in the 21st century. These are pluralism, basically the idea that every so-called truth or idea is equally acceptable and equally valid. Materialism, the preoccupation with material things of the world. Ethical relativism, the idea that truth is totally fluid and subjective. And finally, narcissism or self-love. John Stott doesn't identify these as beasts in his book. That's not his point, right? But I'm asking us to consider if these are true of us in Singapore if we are not discerning, if we are not firmly anchored in God's truth and God's ways, you might find that we are easily engulfed by them. You might find that we don't recognize these to be challenges and in fact, quite willingly live into them. Let me continue to quote Stott. Stott basically says that against the challenge of pluralism, we are called to be a community of truth. 
against the challenge of materialism, we are a community of simplicity and pilgrimage. Against the challenge of ethical relativism, we are a community of obedience. And against the challenge of narcissism, which is self-love, we are to exhibit love for others. Brothers and sisters, the nations, the empires of Babylon, Media, Persia, Greek, and even Rome may be a distant memory. But I suggest to us that their beastliness continues in our day and age today. In modern Singapore culture and life, it's very easy to get swept up by this. Let me give you a personal example. When I started working, I was in the CBD area, and my office had a pretty good work culture of having an afternoon tea break. It's a pretty good habit to have, right? You stand up, you stretch yourself and all. But as I continued to work there, I started being drawn into their tea break culture, which involves going down, buying something like a cupcake or a croissant or a yogurt, and then adding on an artisanal coffee. So very quickly, my tea breaks from something cheap that I could just get in a pantry, get up, walk around, talk to some people in the office, became $15 to $20 affairs. Those of you who work in the CBD, you laugh because you know exactly what I'm talking about. And it adds up, you know. So before long, I didn't realize it, but I was starting to pay almost $200 to $300 a month on tea breaks. Now, I'm not saying that tea breaks is no good, okay? Please continue to go and have tea breaks if you need to. But I wasn't even considering if this expenditure was necessary. I wasn't even considering if I had fallen into the trap of materialism and narcissism. This is a simple example, but there are broader and harder questions to ask. For example, are we so caught up with our cultural value of safety that we are unwilling to risk for the kingdom of God? Are we so caught up with our cultural value of success that we are unwilling to surrender the hope of success if God calls us to? Are we so caught up with our cultural value of security that we will not tolerate suffering and instead just go with the flow, even if God's kingdom values oppose the flow? They are not easy questions to answer, but we need to answer them. Because God's people are holy. They belong to God in a special way. And if they are to be holy and belong to God in a special way, we need to be a discerning people who are anchored in truth. But in doing so, something very scary actually happens. Daniel 7 tells us that beasts don't like God's holy people. That's as simple as that. In fact, God's holy people are persecuted by the beasts because they are God's holy people. They run against the cultural values of the beast, right? So we will hear more in later chapters about how the beast continues to wage war, right? This will be uh, in chapters 8 all the way through to chapters 12. And in fact, this continues into the New Testament. Paul writing to Timothy is quite blunt about this, right? In fact, anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Which brings me to my next point. God's people are a persevering people who are assured in hope. We need to persevere in living out these godly lives because that's just who God's people are. That's what God's people do, right? Um, but biblical perseverance is not a kind of passively hiding in a bunker or locking the door and uh, waiting for the end to come. It's about going out there to actively engage in God's world, in God's ways with God's word, 
right? Even if it brings us persecution and suffering. So one of the areas of faithful engagement that John Stott talks about in that book is creation care. Right, so I don't have time today to go on an extended argument for creation care, but allow me to say a few things. Right? And uh, in, in Daniel's vision, in Daniel chapter 7, we find that the courts sit in judgment. Right? And then books are opened. This picture is actually picked up in Revelation chapter 11. And I still remember when I first got to read this verse properly when I was doing my MDiv in Regent College in Canada. I was quite shocked by this. You look at the last line. Right? In God's judgment, in the wrath that has come, the time for judging the dead, God destroys those who destroy the earth. The earth in Greek can also be translated the land. Right? So basically, this is a verse about the care of creation. By contrast, by logical inference, God's holy people are those who will join with God to steward and care for the land. And John Stott quotes Christopher Wright in his book. I'm just going to read this quote for us. Christopher Wright says, It seems quite inexplicable to me that there are some Christians who claim to love and worship God, to be disciples of Jesus, and yet they have no concern for the earth that bears his stamp of ownership. They do not care about the abuse of the earth, and indeed, by their wasteful and over-consumptive lifestyles, they contribute to it. Scary, right? Now, just two weeks ago, I was introduced to this concept of Earth Overshoot Day. Um, it's, it's a pretty complex thing to calculate. It came out in the Straits Times, and that's where I saw it. Um, so Earth Overshoot Day basically talks about the Earth's resources that the Earth can sustain over the course of a year. So think about that as a budget. right? You have a yearly budget that the Earth can sustain in terms of its resources. Earth Overshoot Day is basically the day in which humanity, living on planet Earth now, exceeds that budget. Okay, so Earth Overshoot Day in 2023 was the 2nd of August. That means that today, now, and until the end of this year, we are living on a deficit, you know. If you think that this is bad, there's another way to calculate this Earth Overshoot Day, and it is called Country Overshoot Day. Right? So basically, Country Overshoot Day is taking that same amount of the total resources of the Earth, but instead calculating it as if everybody in the world were living like the people of one particular country. So I'm going to show you a slide next. It looks very complicated. All you need to do is to try to look for where Singapore is. Okay? So remember, the Global Earth Overshoot Day is 2nd of August. Here is Singapore. 8th of April. The date was the same last year as well as this year. This is Singapore's... Overshoot Day 2023. In other words, since April the 8th, if everybody in the world were to live like a Singaporean, we would have used up the Earth's entire budget of resources for the year. It also means that Singaporeans are consuming way more than the rest of the people who live on planet Earth. So, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we should all turn off our lights and our aircons and our projectors now, or our sound system. What I am saying is that maybe we should be considering if our comfort and convenience has turned into overconsumption that exploits the earth. Have we forgotten about the biblical value of simplicity that John Stott talks about and instead turned to materialism? 
personally, in our church, in our organizations, as well as in our society at large. Maybe we need to reevaluate our lifestyles. And I'm not trying to be naive here, as though if you turn off the tap faster, you will suddenly solve this problem here and Singapore will move to December 25th or something like that. No, that's not what's going to happen, right? But I'm talking about Christians who, in God's image, were granted the mandate to be stewards of the earth. Can we, in our individual ways, think about how we live such that we are more responsible with the use of the earth's resources, knowing that the earth belongs to God? For example, do we need to drive our cars all the time? If we find our room so cold that we need to be putting on multiple layers of jackets, maybe we could turn up the temperature of the aircon slightly to be a level that is still comfortable but not excessively cold. Maybe we could put off purchasing that latest iPhone or the latest laptop or tablet if our current phone or laptop or tablet is still perfectly good for our own purposes. Maybe it's a conscious choice to eat more vegetables and less meat. Now, I'm not being some liberal or woke guy here. That's really not it. Yeah? I hope you understand. It's not about the mere responsibility for ensuring a sustainable future for our children, although there is that, right? It's about that mandate from God to us as Christians. Part of the description of the beast in Daniel 7 is that they leave a trail of destruction, devouring and trampling behind in their wake. And maybe, as Christians, we can live in a way that is counter to that. It will cost us. It will. It will. But maybe that's how God's people persevere in hope until the end. But our ultimate assurance of hope is not placed in the actions that we faithfully do. As though somehow by our actions we can destroy the beasts or we can usher in the kingdom of God on our own. No, Daniel 7 is quite clear that we are actually contingent. Our victory is actually contingent on the Son of Man receiving a kingdom from the Ancient of Days. That's the only way by which we win. And in fact, in Revelation, you find that there seems to be an intensifying trajectory of persecution that happens to God's people. And Revelation 12 verse 11 tells us exactly how we overcome. They, God's saints, triumph over him, Satan and the beast and evil, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, because they did not love their life so much as to shrink from death. Ultimately, God's people persevere here because we are assured in the hope, in that vision of God on the throne and in what Jesus has already done on the cross. Christian discipleship is triumphant, but it is never triumphalistic. God's people are victorious only as we follow in the path of our Saviour, loving not our own lives to death, even death on a cross. The power that is given to us by God is precisely the power to give up our own lives for the life of the world, for the life of our families, for the life of the people, for the life of the whole world. Without His cross, there is no crown. Without a clear vision of God, there is no hope. Without that hope, there is no 
perseverance. And God's holy ones are called to be that people who are persevering because they are assured in hope. Andrew Peterson ends his song like this. Does the Father truly love us? He does. Does the Spirit today move among us? He does. And does Jesus, our Messiah, hold forever those He loves? He does. Does our God intend to dwell again with us? He does. Here, in a new heaven and a new earth. So fantastic beasts and how to overcome them. First, we be a discerning people anchored in truth. Second, we be a persevering people assured in hope. My wife and I were finally able to watch Oppenheimer <laughs> this week. And there was a quote in Oppenheimer that is really, really deep that I'd like to share with you. So you must understand that Oppenheimer is a theoretical physicist. So he uses algebra to calculate things and uh, he needs to visualize them in his mind. So there's this scene where he talks to this other physicist whose name is Niels Bohr. And Niels Bohr says to Oppenheimer, algebra is like sheet music. The thing is not, can you read the music? The thing is, can you hear it? Can you hear the music, Robert? The apocalyptic genre functions something like that. Daniel is given the scene that we read off in our Bibles in Daniel 7. But the thing is not, can you read and understand the text? The thing is, can you look behind the curtain and see the God who sits on the throne and therefore discern the beast and persevere as God's holy people in the face of suffering today. About three months ago, the last time I preached here on Daniel chapter 4, where Nebuchadnezzar basically turned into a beast, I ended the sermon with this song, A Thousand Hallelujahs, and at that time I mentioned to us what the background of that song is, where the uh, composers were in this church, this old church, and they were remembering the thousands of hallelujahs that were sung in that church. And I challenge you at that time, if you would become part of that thousand hallelujahs so that future generations too can sing this thousand hallelujahs. That is part of the background to the song, but there is another background to the song. That background comes in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. As John is caught up into the throne room of God, as he sees the Ancient of Days, Yahweh, God himself, seated on the throne, and all God's angels and living creatures worshipping him around the throne, praising God and saying, holy, holy, holy. That is the second setting to the song. My challenge to us today, as I call us to respond, is this. The world that we live in is not easy. Let's not have um, any misunderstandings about that. Right? Let's not pretend that we can solve everything by our own efforts. But in the midst of the trials that you face, whether it might be within the family, whether it might be with your daily life or with your work or your schoolwork, or whether you're thinking about broad-scale disasters like what I have showed you earlier, my challenge to us today is as God's holy people, would you stand and sing? Would you add your voices to the thousands of hallelujahs that are already being sung in the spiritual world because you have peeked behind the curtain as Daniel has done and seen that there is a God who is seated on the throne.
the thousand hallelujahs are sung in persecution. Would you sing? Would you stand to sing with me this thousand hallelujahs? Wellswood rocks cry out to worship Whose glory taught the stars to shine Perhaps creation longs to have the words to sing But this joy is mine A thousand hallelujahs With a thousand hallelujahs We magnify your name you alone deserve the glory, the honor and the praise. Lord Jesus, this song is forever yours. A thousand hallelujahs and a thousand more. Think who else would die for our redemption? Who else would die for our redemption? Resurrection meets our eyes. There isn't time enough to sing of all you've done. But I have eternity to try. With a thousand hallelujahs, we magnify your name. You alone deserve the glory. This song is forever yours A thousand hallelujahs And a thousand more Church family, my brothers and sisters Here's the challenge Amid the persecution, amid the trial, the temptation, the sufferings Amid the beasts that still overcome us in our culture, in our societies today, amid the difficulties and the travails that we see in the world, would you sing praise to the Lord? Praise to the Lord, not because we are going through a good time here today, but praise to the Lord because we have looked behind the curtain to see Him seated on the throne. Would you sing this praise, acknowledging the pain, acknowledging the suffering, acknowledging that all that it's okay because he rose and he reigns and so we will sing forever praise to the lord to the lamb to the king of
hallelujahs we magnify your name you alone deserve the glory the honor and the praise lord jesus this song is forever yours a thousand hallelujahs and a thousand some time listening to God's Word and we hope that the message has ministered to you. You can visit us at www.cefc.org.sg for more sermon titles. God bless you in your spiritual pilgrimage ahead.